Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 112, air date March 27th, 2017. It's been a great meeting, and uh, it's a pleasure to introduce our final state-of-the-art speaker for our 2017 ASCPT meeting. So we have the great honor of having V.A. Shiva Ayudure as our state-of-the-art speaker. Um, and so he's someone who has been using systems approaches and technology and creativity to uh, improve systems for quite a while. So when he was 14 years old, he was um, working in a summer job in a medical school, medical office, and um, was asked to help sort of organize their uh, inter-office mail system and developed an electronic system for that that took into account inbox, outbox, um, something that, that he coined email. Um, and in 1982 was awarded a copyright for email and then subsequently for his contributions to email as we know it um, entered in the, into the Smithsonian Museum. Um, he has four degrees from MIT, mostly in engineering and systems engineering, and um, really has taken his systems approach to thinking to try to solve problems in a variety of settings. And uh, most recently has turned his focus to uh, systems, uh, systems approaches in pharmacology and uh, biology, so systems pharmacology and systems biology. Um, so Shiva is the chairman and CEO of, of Cytosolve and uh, doing things that align very closely with people in this audience, especially the PKPD pharmacometric systems pharmacology folks, but doing it in a little bit different way and thinking, thinking like an engineer as opposed to thinking like a biologist. And uh, so we always want our keynote speakers to sort of stretch our thinking a little bit, and, and I'm very sure that um, Dr. Ayadouri's presentation will do that. He's a recipient of numerous awards, and I don't want to cut into his time, so please join me in welcoming Shiva Ayadouri. Thanks, Julie. Very lovely. Thanks. All right, welcome. Thank you, Julie. Great president for ASPCT. So I'm, I'm very, very appreciative to be here. And um, what I want to do today is hopefully stretch your thinking on a bu bunch of levels. One, not only on the biology and the technology, but also if we're going to really pursue precision medicine, what are the, some of the core policy things and thinking we're going to actually have to change? And I'm going to share some of it personally, um, some of what Julie alluded to, but also from a science angle. Um, I want to start giving you a little bit of my personal journey. Um, uh, I grew up in India. You know, I was born in India, but I'm basically an all-American Indian in many ways. But I, I think my formative years in India um, really gave me a notion and an appreciation for systems. If you've been to Bombay, Bombay is a very, very eclectic, eclectic city. It's basically sort of a, uh, an industrial furnace if America is a melting pot. But I also grew up in a very different world, in a small village in deep South India, you know, which had no electricity, you know, uh, no running water, etc. And in that village, um, I probably got exposed to what you would today call the uh, quote-unquote the first precision medicine or the first systems biology. My grandmother was a, a poor farmer. She worked 16 hours a day in the fields. But on weekends, and there's actually a picture of her in her Sunday best, 
But, you know, India had an ancient system of medicine, some of you may be aware of, called Siddha and Ayurveda. You know, we in the uh, conventional world may sort of look down upon it, but here was a woman with no degrees, uh, tattoos all over her arms, um, but on weekends, you know, 20 to 30 people would line up at her doorstep and she would observe their face and she would basically be able to diagnose them at the right medicine for the right person at the right time. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this, essentially to give you sort of where I'm coming from and perhaps give you an orientation how some of this stuff has existed in many ways, as we've talked about. But in this ancient system of medicine, what was fascinating was they did have a language, a lingua franca, of how they described existence and the human body. One of the areas you want to look at is the middle area, the orange area, what they call vatha pitta kapha. The point was they had a methodology for looking at the body holistically and diagnosing it. Now, we look at these words, and I'm not going to go through it today, and we may think it sounds like some hocus pocus or even snake oil, but there was a methodology that they had. And this methodology goes back many, many thousands of years, almost 5,000 years. In fact, the Indian government has now started a, uh, a research center for Siddha in South India. But essentially, there were these ancient sages, and they wrote many of these formulations, many of these approaches to what, what I would call the first systems biology in these palm leaf manuscripts. And in fact, what's interesting is they were written in poetry. And you had to understand the poetry, which was written in two levels, connotationally as well as denotationally, which, which means they had, they had an apparent meaning, and then you had to decipher them to understand some of these formulations. And there's hundreds of thousands of them which have only started now to be deciphered. But, and there was a whole lineage of these sages who essentially participated in sharing these over time. My grandmother had the ability to observe someone's face, and the notion was in one of the ancient Indian treatises, it was called Samudraka Lakshanam, which meant that the face was able to understand someone's body type, their state based on the current situation is based on what we would call, uh, quote unquote, the genotype. And based on observing the face, she would come up with particular formulations for that person for a particular etiology of a disease. Now, what's interesting was, this was based on this system of medicine, and, and uh, my interest in medicine really started as a five, six-year-old kid watching this woman empirically help people. So, when I came to MIT, we had a very different way, right? We look at the world, you know, genes and proteins and regulatory motifs and pathways. This is sort of the Western way of looking at biology. So I was very interested in, could you understand both of these worlds? So um, in 2007, after I finished my PhD, I was actually fortunate to get a, um, a Fulbright to travel to India. And in fact, it was fascinating. This appeared on the front page of the official MIT newspaper. I think people were sort of interested, why does this guy in his mid-40s want to go back to India to integrate Eastern and Western medicine? But one of the things I realized, the aha moment was, if you... Uh, as Julie said, from an engineer's approach, you know, this is a system. You know, this is a system. It's a space shuttle's engine. Uh, this is a system. It's a city. And this is a system, obviously. It's a cell, and obviously, these are all systems. Now, in, in engineering systems theory, one of the things you find is that all systems have these sort of these five components, input, output, the concept of transport of energy, information, or matter, the conversion of energy, information, and matter, and storage. These are very, very basic concepts that came around in the 1930s. If you take it to control systems theory, you can add in another set of uh, elements to this. And what's fascinating is, so if you take an engineering systems theory course at MIT, you would, you know, you, you get your understanding of control systems, the concept of every system has a goal, <clears throat> every system has the ability to look at the output sensors, and you're essentially 
you know, the thermostat in this room has a particular goal. We're looking at the output, the sensor's essentially modulating this. And so their intelligent systems are always uh, trying to achieve a particular goal. The aha that I had was when you go back to these Eastern systems of medicine, I don't know how many people do yoga here, but you probably heard the word karma, yes? People heard this word? Um, well, it turns out that vatha, pitta, and kapha, which is sort of the core systems biology of Indian medicine, which is used to diagnose someone, it really turns out to be vatha uh, is correlated to the transport of information, matter, and energy. Pitta is actually related to the conversion, and, and kapha is storage. And if you put it together even more interestingly, and you add in all the yoga terms, um, it turns out there's a very interesting correlation. So the problem is the traditional systems of Indian medicine, what's in fact occurred today is many of the practitioners actually think they're practicing medicine, but what they're actually practicing is an engineering systems approach that was developed thousands of years ago. In my opinion, many of these yogis and sages realize that the body is such a complex system, you can't apply sort of genes and proteins, you have to develop a different lingua franca. In fact, this paper we couldn't obviously publish in a traditional medical journal or a traditional alternative journal, we went and published it in a systems of systems engineering journal. So I wanted to share this with you to let you know that the, the notion of precision medicine, the notion of systems biology has existed. We've probably lost sight of it because in the modern world over the last 400 years, particularly from the Indian system, in fact, the Indian practitioners really, many of them don't understand fully what they're actually practicing. So this was sort of the background in uh, my interests in, in systems biology and as well as precision medicine. Let's look at the modern world. And before I go to that, one of the key things that comes out of this is in these traditional systems, they use the right medicine. Um, and always it was combinations. You know, you didn't just give one herb. Uh, curry, if anyone's had an Indian meal, is combination, or it's a combination of herbs. Uh, it was for the right person. Um, so when they did the diagnosis, they had many different methods of diagnosis. Uh, what they call prakriti, or someone's natural constitution, and it was at the right time. There was this whole notion that disease went through six stages, if you read many of the Ayurvedic texts. So these concepts have existed for many uh, thousands of years. But the key thing that I learned from watching my grandmother, who practiced this form of quote-unquote precision medicine, was it was done in an environment of collaboration, cooperation, and combination. What I'll come back to. So I think these are extremely critical elements for the future of precision medicine, um, particularly if we want to advance it out of the normal academic ways that we do research today. So let's sort of go to that modern world today, what I call journey to precision medicine, sort of the modern systems biology. I think many of you have probably seen a diagram like this before. Um, we know that traditional pharma industry moves from a systems approach. If you notice, there's no feedback here, right? It's what we call an open system. An open system meaning we start with some compound that's discovered in the lab, then we spend probably three to five years in the concept of in vitro testing and in vivo, and hopefully out of that you file an IND. If you make it to that point and, it's, and, and you get allowance, then you go to phase one, phase two, phase three. The critical elements here are it's extremely expensive, um, it's very, very costly as most of you are aware, but more importantly, I think this system did not allow for combination. Right? It was really intended for a single molecule. The other piece was there's very little collaboration here or cooperation. As things move down that pipeline, there's not a lot of incentives, monetary or otherwise, for people to actually collaborate and cooperate, and I think we talk about that. 
So um, in engineering, you know, in my view, maybe this is facetious, but this is a way that you know, people built airplanes many, many years ago. You had a design, you threw a pilot in, if he failed, you said, gee whiz, and if he succeeded, then you try to sort of back-end explain why Bernoulli's equation maybe worked for that airplane. And we still do that, right? We still, after the effect, we, we sort of try to back-end understand mechanisms. And um, I think if we want to be very honest about it, and we want to really look at it, um, in many ways this is the old story of Buddha who brings in, who tells the story of the king, who brings in the six blind men and they're given an elephant and each one is touching parts of the elephant. Uh, each one is probably has a good idea what they're looking at, but if they were to put it together, you'd get something like this. Okay? Um, and, if you, and, and again, if we want to really look at uh, the reality here, there's no really incentive to collaborate. I was at a talk yesterday, someone was talking about Uber and how precision medicine, you know, people have talked about this 20 years ago, and how Uber supports you know, the use of many, many different apps. Uh, but one of the things that, was, that, that uh, was not discussed in that talk was the fact that what are the incentive models for collaboration? Are there any incentive models in academia to collaborate? I'm talking about either monetary, uh, uh, in other ways. So this is one thing I think we really need to look at. Specialization is a key that's needed in biology because we do want to be reductionist on on various levels to under, understand parts, um, there is this notion of there's a lack of communication and lack of integration. So, obviously, if you look at this, uh, the projections, I'm sure most of you looked at this as a prior review, but uh, you can look at the spending 10% of GDP by 2020 will be uh, for healthcare, which is far more higher than defense spending. You know, defense spending comes a lot uh, in, in the public view, but we're looking at a much, much higher cost here. And then this trend has been around um, significantly over the years where increased spending in R&D, we're finding less and less new molecules. So I felt there was a need for a revolution. And just very briefly, and I'll come back to this, um, you know, for me, this is very personal, as, 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 as Julie said. In fact, I went to a dinner with BioTrials. Are they here? Uh, I don't know if they're here. But they've actually set up their office in Newark, New Jersey. And they were talking about when they set it up in Newark, people were wondering why they set up their office in Newark. But I had the early opportunity when I was uh, 14 to actually do some initial research in Newark at that medical school and looking at why babies were dying in their sleep. And we did some of the early big data on mainframes, essentially looking at sleep patterns. But it, uh, Julie was sharing, in that institution, uh, what was fascinating was I was exposed to collaboration, integration, and cooperation. You have to understand, in 1978, who used computers? If you go back to 1978, it was essentially uh, primarily men, highly technical. Um, the concept of a secretary in a medical school using a computer was inconceivable, right? Secretaries, uh, always a woman was um, designated to uh, manage, you know, inner office communications in this case. If you remember in those days, there was an inbox, an outbox, there was folders, this entire process. Um, this memo would get created. and. Part of what we need to understand, in these medical organizations, the inner office mail system was a vehicle for collaboration. It was how grant applications got done. You had the notion of forwarding, carbon copy. It was a way to bring people together. And you would put this in this old inner office mail envelope. Anyone remember this? Right? And some of you may remember this. <laughs> right? These was, this was the, and for the people below the age of 40, you may not have seen this, 
but this was the email before email, or the Ethernet before Ethernet. But this is how collaboration took place. This was the old-fashioned way of how people did all sorts of things from hiring people. So I was asked to convert this to the electronic version. You can go to the Smithsonian. Um, this is in there now. But I called it email, a term never used before in the English language. The reason it was called email was, uh, for the idiosyncratic reason, the Fortran language only allowed six characters and the operating system allowed five. It was not an obvious term. Okay? Um, that's me when I was a kid. Um, but you notice this was done in collaboration. My high school supported this development. The teachers supported this. They, they allowed a kid from Livingston to travel to Newark. Now most parents won't even allow their kids probably to travel down the street. Um, but it was a very different environment in the 70s. And by the way, from an intellectual property protection, I think this is, will come to this for all the developments that are going to take place in precision medicine. Policymakers in Washington do not understand, frankly, what's going on in science. What's interesting here is people thought in 1970 that software was sheet music. It was only in 1994 to the Federal Court of Appeals that you patent software. My only alternative was to copyright it. So this is the official U.S. copyright for email that was issued to me in 1982. But the key thing I learned as a kid was collaboration in this very, probably, rare opportunity where I, as a kid, was allowed to collaborate with people 30 to 40 years older than me, treated as an equal, and out of that is where email came from. It did not come from the military, it came from a health sciences institution, which is a very important narrative that uh, is important for everyone to hear about. But I really learned how to build systems, and that, that's me when I was 14, by the way. Um, but I share this with you because when I came to MIT, I was deeply interested in medicine, and I was a little bit taken aback because the way that uh, we approach medicine was to look at things as parts, right? So if you go for healthcare, if you have a headache, uh, to sort of put it simply, you may get sent around to many, many different specialists. So I would sort of apply for medical school, take away my application, apply and take away, because I had this deep sort of regret that medicine was not holistic. Something interesting occurred. I had another life with email in 1993 when I actually helped the Clinton White House analyze their email. We built a company called EchoMail, and we grew that to around $250 million in value. But the point was that was another system for email analysis. When I finished that company, something interesting was going on. My advisor at MIT said, Shiva, you should come back. There's a big development taking place. This is around 2003. If people remember, we thought, what was the difference between a human and a worm? And we had the conclusion it had to do with the number of parts, right? We thought it was a number of genes. Um, and if you remember this chart, um, we went into it, into the genome project in the mid-90s, thinking what made us different than that lowly worm, which we knew had about 20,000 genes, uh, was we thought we had maybe, maybe had a half a million genes or 100,000 genes. By 2003, when I was coming back to MIT, it turned out that we have about 20,000 genes. It's fascinating, right? So, very eminent biologists, very smart people thought what made complexity was a direct function of the number of parts. When in fact it's not that, it's the interconnections which give rise to molecular pathways and many things far more complex. So this is when I decided to come back to MIT. Uh, Peter Hunter, at that time I published this, um, calling it the human physiome, and the concept was if we're going to model things at a very high level, like the, uh, like the human body or large organs, that we, we need to go not just beyond, we need to go far beyond the genes to proteins and the interactions among a whole choreography of genes, proteins. A far more complex problem. 
Um, NSF had put forward this grand challenge which said, could we mathematically model the whole cell? This is around 2003 to 2004. And Professor Forbes Dewey, who was uh, uh, heading up the microfluidics lab at MIT, who was my undergraduate advisor, said, Shiva, you're going to love this field. It gives you the opportunity to take a systems approach, apply engineering systems theory, do computing, and, and learn biology. So at the age of 42, I came back to MIT, finishing up my company, had to retake all my qualifiers. Um, but it was an interesting project. So if we start looking at the cell or any biological phenomenon as an integration of many, many different components, interactions of systems of systems, at MIT at this time, most of the approach that was being done to do this kind of modeling was people were doing small molecular pathways, maybe at most 20 to 50 species, and that after a certain point that was getting too complicated. The computer science folks came in with algorithms, right? What we today call machine learning or big data. So you just throw a bunch of stuff at it. You don't really care about what's going on inside. It's basically input and output. Um, and just to level set, just, just so we're all on the same page here, you know, we can model the phenomenological world in two ways. One is we can model it as a black box where we're, you know, where we're manipulating it, we're getting data, and we just care about, in some ways, fitting a line to a curve. The other way is we actually try to understand causality and mechanisms. In biology, the latter has been far more difficult because of the fact that biology it, it crosses many temporal and spatial scales, and it's very, very domain-specific. So if you look at a diagram like this, probably everyone in this room can own a little piece of this, and we may spend 50 years understanding every little piece of it. So when I looked at this problem, I said, let's not consider it as a biology problem. Let's consider it as a distributed computing problem. You know, when I did this company called EchoMail, we worked with large enterprises. You know, different enterprises had their HR systems, their CRM systems, their Salesforce systems, all of them are systems of systems, but they ultimately have to couple together if you want to get a holistic view of a company, which is what a CEO wants. So it's a very different approach. So we said, imagine we start viewing everyone in this room as creators of knowledge who are working on domain-specific problems, and they themselves may be working on particular models and problems. So how do we do it? It's basically a coupling and an integration exercise. And for many, many years, engineers have had to do this, right? If you're building a large system like an airplane, et cetera, it's an engineering systems approach, not really a systems biology approach. So the, just again to make sure we're on the same page, a molecular pathway is one of these ball and stick diagrams. You know, primarily, biology is still a diagrammatic field. You take a biology course, um, whether it's with PowerPoint or whether it's with a diagram, the, your lecturer will draw out these diagrams. Over the last 10 to 15 years, those molecular pathways, we can start modeling because with high-throughput imaging, we're actually able to measure some of these rate constants, et cetera. So biology's moving, started moving over the last 10 years from a diagrammatic field to a quantitative field, predictive quantitative models. So given that this is occurring, imagine everyone in this field ha is taking one of those ball and stick diagrams and starting to build models. Now the issue becomes how do you integrate these systems of systems of models? In fact, it gets even more interesting, right? Because any one of these models could be changing in real time. New rate constants are being found, new proteins are being found. So you can't really um, say, I'm going to monolithically mash all this together in one big program. Okay, it would be like we were all working at Google, working on one piece of code that did everything. You have to take a distributed systems approach. So 
abstractly, what we said was, let's take any biological phenomenon to be composed as a system of pathways, be it a disease or a complex phenomenon, and assume each one of those pathways are owned and managed by people anywhere in the world. And those models may be updated, new domain information may be coming in. So the issue becomes, how do you integrate this on the fly? Right? Because only then can you really do large-scale complex models. So that resulted in what we call the cytosol architecture. To put it simply, at the bottom layer you have models, which can be talked to, communicated to, and cytosol essentially is like an orchestra conductor. It is, it is essentially timing and it's getting pieces of computations and it is connecting them together using basic you know, mass balance. So we did this, it was a very interesting idea. So in some ways, if email was the electronic version of the inner office mail system, Cytosol the electronic version of the molecular communication system. And we published a lot, right, because you have to publish stuff, so um, you, you, you test it, you do prototyping. Um, one of the earliest papers that we published was, this is called the Kolodenko pathway for EGFR. And in this pathway, it's been very well modeled. You can model it monolithically. There's about 120 tools out there where you can do these kinds of diagrams reasonably well. It's not that complex. So there were answers for this. So we took this, however, and we split it into four subsystems, each of them running on different computers. By the way, computing is really not the issue here in terms of speed, because these are very small models. So you can run them, in fact, on small laptops. But the issue becomes not the computing power, but the complexity of integration. So we had these running on different uh, systems. And then what you see is the, the, um, the lavender line is our solution. The other one is done monolithically. So we got the same answer. So this was sort of a, a quick test. But I was really interested um, uh, from an ambitious standpoint, could we actually use Cytosoft to completely and radically change the entire drug development process and make it actually a feedback systems process, which means could we handle not only a single compound but multiple compounds? Could we extract not just data from clinical research but mine the literature, not for, again, data but for those ball and stick diagrams, convert them to models, and then be able to do in silico um, on the computer in terms of those large-scale systems. And if you think about it, we don't build airplanes today by just throwing a, a pilot um, into, a, into an airplane, right? The, 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 the equations of Newton and Bernoulli stuff, everything's modeled on the computer. Then we move over to a wind tunnel, and then we do testing. And hopefully, not too many pilots get killed. But this is a feedback systems process. In biology, that top layer for modeling didn't exist, and that's what we wanted to fill the gap with Cytosol. So I'm going to show you over the last 12 years now, this is a beyond theory now, we've literally created an information ma manufacturing process now. We can literally take a problem, be it a, and I'll share with you a couple of case studies, a biological phenomenon or a disease. We have a methodology to mine the literature, but when we mine them, the first step we do is we mine them for those ball and stick diagrams, and we create what we call computational systems architectures. This was a very interesting word for some of the biologists to understand. I'll show you an example of this. this is one of the papers we just published in Nature Neuroscience. Um, once we have an architecture of a disease, like an architect would do, then you go take an engineering approach and you take components of that, you test them, you validate them, and then you integrate them, do integrated testing, and now you have a model of that phenomenon, albeit knowing this is not perfect. We know the literature has errors, we know there's uncertainty, but the idea is we've created a framework for collaboration. And 
the process we've taken is, again, collaboration and cooperation, is we can work with expert people, experts who either point us to literature or there's public repository. We drive it through that process. Those models are accessible online in the cloud. Simulation takes place and the research community can participate in either saying, are these models consistent, inconsistent? And in, in fact, if they are inconsistent, the demand is for the research researcher to tell us why versus just sort of hand-waving and telling, them, telling us that they're inconsistent. Um, various, what's fascinating is the disruptive nature of this, this approach is making us actually define whole new ways of working with even foundations and government, et cetera. Uh, foundations who were linearly just focused on just funding researchers are recognizing that there's entrepreneurial opportunities for them, and I'll talk about some of those also. But the uses of this are many, from systems modeling uh, to uh, nutraceutical therapy, et cetera. But I just want to jump in, and I'll sh sort of walk you through one example. So. Um, several years ago, I was giving a talk at one of the Milken uh, retreats to neuroscientists. Um, these are some of the top 25 neuroscientists. And I was sharing with them the need for collaboration. One of them who got very excited with what we were doing was uh, uh, Betsa Bereslav Zilkovich, who heads up the uh, Zilkin Neurological Disease Center in, uh, in um, USC. And this is the interesting problem in biology. There's a... There's a, there's a um, increasing notion that many of the neurovascular diseases, Alzheimer's, ALS, all those diseases, many of them are a function of breakdowns in the blood-brain barrier. So what you're seeing there is a lateral view and a cross-sectional view. The pink is what are known as parasites. Parasites, parasites are almost like a control valve which um, decide how much blood will flow from the artery, which has the endothelial, into the brain, astrocytes. Okay, so what we did was Step one, this is the problem. Step two, we mine the literature, again, using domain people plus automated mining. These are all the molecular pathways involved in the endothelial. There's probably about 500, 600 papers curated behind this. That's step one. Similarly, we did it for the parasites on the left side and for the astrocytes. When we had done this mining, we wanted to obviously submit this in a, not just a review paper, but in a very different form. So one of the interesting contributions that we made was we said, let's start looking at neurovascular diseases from a computational systems architecture standpoint. So what I mean by that, in computing, um, when you build a piece of software, you build it in layers. Okay, you have what's called, for example, the data layer, the application layer, and the user interface layer. Here, we, we denoted the data layer as the anatomical components, which you see below. And that's literally coming from the literature. So if you look closely, there are three boxes on the bottom. There's the endothelial, there's the parasites, and there's the astrocytes. Each one of those components has subcomponents, which are literally from the literature, the molecular systems um, that today's literature has in there. By the way, this, this diagram is dynamic. It can be changing as we're speaking today because new, new literature is being found. The next layer is what we call the communication layer. In that communication layer, we're denoting how the, the, the molecular systems that communicate between the endothelial and the parasites and the parasites and the astrocytes. There are six that were identified between the endothelium and the parasites and two between the parasites and the astrocytes. When we then layered at what I call sort of the UI or the, the disease layer, you find that m many of these diseases are breakdowns in particular communication subsystems. Okay, so for example, if you look at 
um, hypoxia and AD. So you see them, that they break down one of the VEGF pathways. So when we submitted this, again, to uh, Nature Neuroscience, half of the reviewers loved it, and the other half thought we were completely ridiculous. They never heard the term computational systems architecture. They thought this was a bogus term. Um, and uh, we had to write back a 20-page response. Most of that was educating this community with, with references to textbooks that there's a whole field of computational architecture. Anyway, it was published. Uh, it's gotten extremely good citations and reviews, but the reason I wanted to share this with you, this was going into a, a field that I have very little understanding of, except probably one PhD course that I took many years ago, but we were able to bring this approach to give a whole new methodology an engineering systems approach to looking at disease and then the subsystems within it. So that's sort of the first three steps. The next approach is let's look at not only are we doing an architecture, but can you actually model complex phenomenon with accuracy? This is something people think it's not capable of being done. In this project, this was done across collaboration across four institutions. Uh, the key researcher leading this was Andrew Koo. And Andrew was really looking at blood flow in arteries and the release of nitric oxide. So when we send blood, as you know it, through the arteries, um, they, uh, you know, uh, the shear stress of the blood flow impinges on the endothelial. On the surface of the endothelial is a anatomical structure called a glycocalyx. It's actually a mechanotransducer. Think about it as a tree waving. When blood flows, that tree waves, and it starts molecular reactions below it. Andrew took many years to set up, about three years to set up this infrastructure where he can tweak different levels of shear stress and he could measure NO flow. But Andrew was interested in something more interesting. What are the mechanisms causing this? How does this occur? Again, if you look at the literature, sort of akin to the, uh, the different blind men, you'll find various narratives, various ways, various many different domains that are related to NO release. And behind each one of these diagrams is a ton of literature and each very domain specific. If you try to put them all together in one big manner, monolithically, as I said, it becomes, first of all, hard to do and intractable to maintain. So what we did was we were fortunate to connect with Andrew and we collaborated. Each one of those components were kept as individual engineering components. Each were modeled. Each were validated from, from the known literature. And then we integrated them, coupled them together, where none of them are actually mashed together, but they remain in their native formats. And the results are pretty impressive. Um, this is Cytosol's prediction. Again, this is mechanism. This is not big data. We're not fitting a line to a curve. And this is actually the in vitro results. Similarly here, same. Um, so this was very, very promising. This was published in Cells by a physical journal, by the way. It was one of the first mechanistic models of NO release with shear stress. But more importantly, we were able to show that Cytosoft could be applied in this distributed fashion to a very complex problem that we could actually get reasonable, accurate results. Um, the other area that I want to talk about is combination uh, uh, you know, in toxicity. Um, several years ago, um, I gave a talk at um, Walter Reed Medical Hospital, and the Army had dedicated quite a bit of funds to understand combinations of supplements. Some of you may, may know soldiers, this is in the Army, actually take many different over-the-counter supplements. In this case, the military soldiers in the, military, in the, in the Army were taking a Yohimbi, which is has, believed to have methyl testosterone in it, uh, synephrine, creatine, caffeine, and arginine, some of them for performance, anabolic effects. 
The issue is, what are these actually doing in the body? Very complex problem. Um, the approach that the USP was doing, and I was asked to be on the expert council, was one approach was you basically get all the adverse drug reaction reports, and you ask the soldier what they do, took, and you try to do a correlation. Um, I said, look, there's potentially a better way to do this. I recused myself, and we did a prototype project where we said, look, we already have the nitric oxide model done. So again, we can plug and play that, which existed before from the cell work that was done at MIT and, at Brigham. And we said, let's look at two of your supplements, arginine and caffeine. And we looked at different ADMA levels, which are a measure of hypertension. And what we did was, we literally first looked at arginine. And what you're looking here is a blue line represents sort of normal individuals, to keep it simple, and the purple one represents people with high um, ADMA, which means high hypertension. And what you can see is obviously arginine supplementation drives NO release, right? So obviously it helps people, particularly with hypertension. If you take people who are just taking the caffeine supplement, one cup of coffee does some depression, according to this model, on NO, but there's a supplement on the market, I think it's called, what is it, C4, Probucker? Yeah, C4, which is like taking, I think, 20 cups of coffee, equivalent of. And that literally drives down NO significantly. So the issue was, what do you do when you combine them? So on the left graph, we're looking at people with different ADMA levels taking arginine and caffeine, and you can see that um, arginine brings back the NO, and you're sort of back in the level of about 70 80%. But in the right graph, if you take the C4 supplement, it's very difficult, even with arginine supplementation, particularly for the people with the purple, um, the, uh, purple bar on the right side, to come back up. So this gave a very good indication that where we could actually start putting bounds on what levels of C4 in combination you shouldn't take. And this became sort of the core of one of the USP monographs in terms of where Cytosolve and this approach was um, recognized as the mechanistic approach for multi-ingredient supplements. Um, what, what gets even more interesting is about a couple of years ago, this article appeared in Nature. And the article was basically written by some very eminent people in the cancer oncology field saying, if we're going to really address cancer, we can't use single drugs, we have to use combinations. And we were sort of pleasantly surprised to find out we were the only ones referenced in there. Again, it was no inside job. Um, but um, so one of our researchers said, Shiva, why don't we actually use Cytosolve for looking at combination therapy? You know, can we actually do this? Um, going back to my Indian sort of roots, in India, by the way, you'll find these, you know, these medicine men, these yogis, mixing things together. Some of you may know curcumin. Everyone have, anyone have Indian food? Yes? Okay, but if you, the yellow stuff is called curry. The reason it's yellow, curry is actually a combination of ingredients. The yellow stuff is actually called turmeric. The active ingredient in turmeric is called curcumin. So there's been 6,000 studies now found Indians epidemiologically have one-third less cancer than Asia, and it's been attributed to the high consumption of curcumin. So we mined those papers relative to inflammation, and we looked at all the places curcumin hits, and we modeled that, and we were able to find that curcumin definitely has a lowering effect on, uh, on an inflammatory marker, PGE2. Similarly, we did that for resveratrol, um, and we found something pretty close. So if you go to Whole Foods or these natural food markets, and you go to the anti-inflammation aisle, you'll see all these combinations. If you ask people, well, how did you come up with this? Most of them will do hand-waving. Well, my Chinese doctor told me that I studied in China. So there's really no, um, 
rationale to it. So what we were able to do, this was a fun example we did, where we looked at the inflammatory pathways, looked at uh, curcumin and resveratrol, and we were actually able to sort of do our own combination analysis. There, so that's an example where there's a high level of inflammation, that's just curcumin, it come, drops. Uh, same with resveratrol, when you do a combination, you see what everyone calls the sum of the parts is greater than the whole, this synergistic effect. The point being, we have a platform to start testing these things in silico. We took this beyond just sort of a kid's problem, and we raised a little bit of money, about a million dollars, and we said, could we apply this to pancreatic cancer? And what we did was we took, as you know, in cancer, the current approach is you upregulate apoptosis, you downregulate cell proliferation. Gemcitabine is sort of the gold standard um, today in this field. So we modeled, by the way, behind this, we're sort of giving you the flat version, but it's a system of systems uh, models of apoptosis, cell proliferation. And what we did was we went through the 262 generics. Our lawyers said don't um, use the um, patented drugs. And we processed those. We found 13 major ingredients we could give IV with high, you know, good GMP, 10 million combinations. Bottom line, we, we identified around um, five combinations which were, which were optimized, and then one we took and we actually applied for an IND, which we'd never done before. Um, when we submitted this, interestingly enough, we got a call from the FDA saying, you know, what you guys are doing, we don't normally make these calls out, is what Janet Woodcock would like to see done in the 23rd century. Our IND was allowed. And we were pleasantly surprised. We took the models, what we'd created, and we went to MD Anderson, the president's office, and we've created a joint venture with them where these models are now being advanced with uh, uh, the entire tumor environment to create a platform from in silico to in vivo, you know, to clinical for combination therapies. And, and so we own 80%, they own 20%. The point is, I'm telling you, we've taken it sort of end to end. Um, Another example I want to share with you, this is again in pharma, is, is with alnylam. Um, there's a very interesting or a, a, a rare disease called hereditary angioedema. In fact, I saw one of the posters someone had done from Cetera on this, uh, Cetera. And angioedema, um, when we approached them, they were in late stage preclinical where they had already in mouse uh, found a target. And alnylam, by the way, is a Phil Sharp company where they're doing siRNAIs where they, you know, uh, uh, turn off mRNA. And they had found a target in mice, but they were very reluctant to move forward with it because their data was counterintuitive to what people had seen in the industry. So within about uh, 45 days, we weren't even sure if there was enough literature. I can't share with you some of the background, but the, but the key thing is bradykinin is an important protein involved in this metabolic process. And then in the next phase, we actually modeled it. The left is the target versus our, uh, the, uh, the protein, showing our results. After we did this, then we were given access to their mouse data. Okay, so it's pretty good. But more, more importantly, behind that blue line is the mechanisms that explain it. And that's probably the most valuable piece that came out of it. And then we were fortunate for them, and I'm sharing this with you just to show that this is not something that's sort of uh, tomorrow that I think we, we couldn't have gotten anything better than this, saying that, the, that Cytosol really supported them in that clinical process. I'm going to finish up with, in the next five minutes, sort of some challenges to precision medicine. So what I've shared with you is the, the use of 
in silico mechanistic modeling to look at the literature to define what I call computational architectures, which I think is a move that we need to do, look at the whole. The other is we can start looking at components from, as engineers model them, connect them together, knowing that things are changing, knowing that this is not perfect. And then the last piece is really to start understanding that we can, in fact, solve problems which accelerate drug development. I'm going to end, end this piece with um, sort of what I see some of the challenges are. Remember I told you that, um, uh, for, first of all, I'm really, really pleased that Julie as a woman is heading up ASCPT. My mom was one of the, you know, in India, uh, women in the 1940s, it was very hard for them to even get educated. Uh, in India also as a caste system, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, uh, you won't find a lot of Indians like me were considered what's called the lower caste. But my mom uh, was one of the first educated mathematicians. So in 2012, um, uh, all of the, uh, uh, my mom had before she died with pulmonary fibrosis that saved all of those email documents. Remember I shared with you? And um, so I never, by the way, pushed the email story at all. But when this came out, Time Magazine did an article that came to my home, reviewed it. This was early in 2012. And, this, and then went into the Smithsonian. And from a scientific standpoint, this should have been an occasion for celebration because we're talking about cooperation, integration, all these great things. And what you'll see as you'll read the literature, I'm just going to go through this in the interest of time, is a lot, some of the people got really upset. It was impossible that a 14-year-old kid in Newark, New Jersey could have invented email. And you can see all of this literature. Horrible things came out. Uh, to attack my reputation. And what you find is behind this was organizations who, who try to control narratives in science and development of where does innovation come from. And I think for precision medicine to, to move forward, we need to also be aware of this. Otherwise, we're going to be sort of at the same place we were 25 years before. What was fascinating was, in this story, we were fortunate to find a document written in December 1977 by one of our detractors where he had written saying it was impossible to build something like email in December 1977 uh, by the ARPANET guys. Because remember, these guys were working on simple text messages. They thought it inconceivable that a woman could move from the typewriter to the keyboard. So, and as you unravel this, Noam Chomsky got involved in this because he was also looking at this from the larger situation, not only about the invention of email, but where is science moving? How can science move forward if we actually don't support and recognize that innovation can occur anywhere, not only at MIT, but also in Newark, New Jersey? And in the middle of this, it's even more fascinating, Walter Isaacson, who's a very liberal writer, writes a book in the heat of this controversy on innovation. Remember, precision medicine, we're talking about innovation. And what's fascinating about this article is you read this, this book, it's called Innovators of the Digital Revolution. And tell me what you see here. This is a narrative, who are the innovators of the digital revolution? Any pattern? Okay, it's pretty obvious. Um, and he ends a book thanking Vannevar Bush, who, by the way, founded Raytheon, who was a company that tried to say they invented email when they didn't. Um, and this is in the 1940s when Raytheon got spun out of MIT, and a very famous historian of science said the day that that happened is when a lot of the pure research in science sort of ended. And if you think about this, Eisenhower talked about this. He called it the military-industrial-academic complex, which were right in D.C., big universities, big uh, corporations, and military, that all great innovations must come out of. And Isaacson calls it the golden triangle. All right? And I was, obviously, with MIT, you're part of that. But that narrative of that kid 
doesn't fit that. Everyone following me? This is very important for us to understand if we're really going to move larger narratives. So for me, by the way, this was on the front page of MIT when I came to MIT about in 81. So there was no really controversy here except the one created when it went into the Smithsonian. As a colleague of mine said, it was like a new skull had been found in Africa and you reset the origin of you know, where humans came from. Um, but I bring this up because that innovation occurred, in fact, this was in that article with really three women who supported me. My grandmother, a very interesting woman who fought with the school system so this 14-year-old kid could travel to Newark, and my mom. So it was really women who, frankly, I think we need more women in science, and it needs to really be one of the preeminent things we do for science. Um, that was involved. Where this also gets very interesting is, I talked about Cytosol in the next two minutes, I just want to wrap this up. You know, there's this huge controversy in science about GMOs. This appeared on the front page of MIT, buy fresh, buy GMO, and our colleagues said, why don't we use Cytosol as scientists to address it? It seemed like everyone was looking at the parts of the problem, so we wanted to go beyond the pro or non-GMO, and it turns out, if you want to understand the difference between David Bannon and the Hulk, um, the way that GMOs are today treated, by the way, the FDA really doesn't take a position on GMOs, if you really think about it. In 1976, this concept of substantial equivalence was passed. Are anyone familiar with this? It's a very interesting policy. It was designed for medical devices. So if I made a stethoscope today and I changed one little thing, I didn't have to go through a whole innovation process. It was reasonably the same, with same criteria, substantial equivalence for medical devices. When GMOs came, uh, Michael Taylor applied the same substantial equivalence policy to decide what's equivalent. And if you read through this policy, it really talks about the manufacturer gets to choose the criteria of equivalence. And we felt from a very objective period, again, I'm not pro or anti-GMO, was what would be the characteristics that should be chosen. So we actually employed Cytosol to soybean. By the way, 97% of the soybean in the United States is genetically engineered. And we went through, again, using this process, about 6,000 experiments 180, across 184 scientific institutions, and we culled all of this knowledge, and we started building a molecular systems understanding of plant physiology. So we looked at the C1 metabolism, where formaldehyde is created, and also uh, detoxified using glutathione. The net of it is, when we looked at the systems approach, you can start building an understanding of a systems architecture of genetic modification of soy, we published a series of papers, and what we found was that the criteria of difference was formaldehyde and glutathione. So in, in particular, as we went through the papers, extracted out those molecular pathways, understood the modeling, what we found out was that in normal plants, uh, in the nor normal GMO, formaldehyde is created, and it gets uh, evanescently taken away quickly. But in the GMO, formaldehyde accumulates because the glutathione on the left side, which is in the normal plants, actually gets depleted. This was published, and um, more recently we published this concurrence paper, because when we initially did it, people said this is just a model. We were fortunate to find researchers in London who had actually grown this in the greenhouse and actually come across with the same results. Okay? But we had the evidence to show why that was occurring. So essentially in soy, there appears to be 240% less glutathione in the GMO versus non-GMO. So the issue is, are we using the right approaches, the right criteria to decide difference or, or material difference? And I, I think a systems approach can actually help answer these kinds of problems. 
And by the way, you can read about all this as we cannot avoid the politics of this. There's been a ton of papers that have come out. Again, you can't avoid email about some of the collusion that's taken place. Um, when you guys have time, in closing, there's a great book written called The Inside Job by Charles Ferguson. Um, talks about the financial collapse, how uh, the academic collusion that took place to say that Iceland was a great economy to invest in and when the collapse took place. And, and same with if we look at the history of smoking. For 50 years, we were told that smoking was good, where, again, we did reductionist science, not putting things together. I want to end with these two quotes, which you may know from Eisenhower and Senator Fulbright, that we need to be aware that we have an opportunity, particularly if we're going to advance science, to really look at the fact is that, that we need to look at it in a very collaborative way. And I want to end with, I think, the key things for precision medicine are collaboration, cooperation, and combination. And if we think about what we've created here, um, we've created this as an open architecture. Um, our essential goal is the infrastructure exists, and when we look at in silico mechanistic modeling as a future for precision medicine, it's not even going to be possible for us to even do mechanistic modeling if we can't do it in this ecosystem. And one of the things that's happened to us now is in real time, we've now spun off about nine different companies out of Cytosolve. I would like to be a company of zero employees eventually. And the idea is that we are now creating collaborations. We have a collaboration with MD Anderson and pancreatic cancer, with Rudy Tanzi at Harvard, uh, at Mass General with Alzheimer's, with Whale Cornell, we're looking at lupus. But our view is that this is just an engine for in silico mechanistic modeling, but it's only through this collaboration and cooperation of multiple institutions all wanting to share data, participate, give domain knowledge, are we even going to be able to build these very valuable models? Thank you very much. Phenomenal. So I think we have time for um, probably a couple questions if there's any questions from the audience. Uh, hi, Dean Bottino, Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Uh, thank you for an excellent presentation. Very, very interesting stuff. I think it's, it's moving in the right direction. I wanted to compare, contrast my personal experience um, taking pathway diagrams from nature papers and cell papers, converting them to ODEs, and then seeing whether the emergent input-output behavior, behavior of the model matches the same data that was reported in the same paper that the drawing came from, and I would say 0% success rate. Um, how, much of that, how much of that do you find uh, in, in your system that needs to be, you know, new feedback loops need to be added in order to, to actually perform like the system that it was designed for? It's a great question. So, you know, the EBI, as you know, many years ago, they started an online repository for models. When, this was back in 2003 to 5. Most of the models that we downloaded, first of all, didn't work and even match, right? Because they're nonprofits and they're not being curated well. But I think the point that you're bringing up is that when you even take those diagrams and you model them, you get a very big discrepancy. And you actually find, in fact, we've done pathways where we've seen discrepancies in the research. It makes you start wondering, you, know, you have to really start under identifying the conditions of the research under what conditions they took place. So for example, some of these rate constants, they can vary by several orders of magnitude based on what solution, right, it, it, whether it was a supersaturated solution or a, you know, a, a, under normal conditions. 
But I think the point is when you go through this exercise of aggregating the literature and starting to do this modeling, you do find these inconsistencies. And I think it's an opportunity for us to do this feedback process back to the researchers, back to the community, and for them to also provide honest feedback. So part of, if you saw that model, one of our goals we're doing is trying to push people to give feedback because it's not going to happen with us just modeling and finding errors. There needs to be an incentive model set up where you can actually support this feedback mechanism. But you find many, many discrepancies. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Arthur Allen Children's Hospitals, Minnesota. Um, not a question, but uh, something I want to bring to your awareness, you, although you may be already. Uh, last fall, I attended an international conference on rare diseases, co-sponsored by the University of Minnesota and the Embassy of India, because in India, rare diseases hmm. are uh, such an enormous problem. The embassy chose to sponsor this international conference. Uh, you may be aware of this, but in attending the sessions, uh, I was just struck by how much this area seemed to be uh, fragmented, and this seems, although it, you, you showed that you're already uh, involved in this area, uh, that you may want to pursue contacting one of those two groups to... Uh, I, I don't know if this is going to be an annual event, but I hope that it is, and I hope you look into it. Yeah, great. I, I think one of the things we've started seeing in rare diseases and as we do modeling, frankly, we don't even, I don't, we don't even look at the world as disease anymore. The model repositories we've started putting together, what we're starting to see, even among different rare diseases, that as you start looking at these as engineering components, that these components show up in different places. And that dysfunctions in these components under certain conditions cause some of these different naming of, in fact, different diseases. So I think there's a whole different way of looking at disease. And I think the rare disease area is a great area, an opportunity to do that because all of these diseases, thousands of disease, rare diseases, right? They're all bucketed into very, very tight little silos that you can actually, uh, my view is if you take an engineering approach, you can start seeing commonality among many of these. What's that? Oh, I thought something, I'm sorry, yep. Hi, um, Mahesh Samtani, Janssen. Uh, I have a quick question about curcumin. So it's, it has very poor oral bioavailability. So it's pretty much ending up in our colon. It's probably a good prevention for colon cancer. Um, but it seems that it helps Indians. So there must be something going on. Is it this low, very low exposure for our entire lifetime? Or is there something in Indian food that maybe gives it that fractional increase in oral bioavailability? Have you had any thoughts about it? Can you mind that? Is there a way to find out? Yeah, it's a great question. So it turns out, um, anyone start taking curcumin supplements after you? People, yeah. So if you go to Whole Foods, there's now tons of turmeric supplements, right? The key is bioavailability. So in India, traditionally, when you took um, turmeric, one way you would do it was you actually boiled milk at night and you threw a teaspoon in. And the reason was that it essentially some people call it was creating small nanoparticles. That's what the recent evidence is showing, because it created little liposomes around the turmeric. But in Indian curry, the way you, you never took, there's no Indian curry, you just take turmeric. You always mixed it with five or six other herbs, one being pepper. There's a lot of evidence showing pepper and pe piperine 
increases the bioavailability of curcumin. So no one in India basically consumes turmeric alone, right? Uh, you'd be sort of seen as crazy if you did that. So are you talking about black yeah. pepper or red pepper? Uh, black pepper. <laughs> well, what I've seen in the studies is black pepper, but there's, but I think, the, I think you're bringing up a great point, is that these herbs were combination therapeutics. So they were, you know, and by the way, every village had its own interesting curry. You could start a war in a village by criticizing someone's curry. And, it, and, and there probably is reasons for this because there's probably different genetics. And I mean, you, you, there's some research to be done. But curry, turmeric was never given alone. One more question. So Carl Peck, UCSF, thanks. That was a fascinating talk. Um, your approach seems to be entirely deterministic. I heard nothing about the stochastic uh, elements here. And I wonder if Bayesian network analysis wouldn't be an appropriate way to sort out which of those, which of those bubbles and lines should be discarded uh, to make the, the system simpler and more precise. Yeah, it's a great question. When I first started this in 2003, most of the work was Bayesian machine learning, Petri dish, right? Petri nets, I'm sorry, um, approaches. So I view that in the area of what I call machine learning and statistical approaches. This is mechanistic. Our view is that both actually can support each other. So you're absolutely right. Some of the Bayesian uh, efforts actually help trim our networks to figure out what you don't really need to get that detailed about. But you're absolutely right. In fact, we have um, different institutions who are doing statistical and Bayesian approaches, which we're now starting to collaborate with. Because we're heavily into the mechanism, it may turn out that some of the detailed mechanisms, we don't need to go as detailed, and we could treat as more of a lump system. Exactly. Right. Yep. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Um, I want to uh, have yeah. you join me in thanking um, Thank Shiva, and uh, I'd like to present uh, a special token of our appreciation, ASCPT uh, uh, State of the Art Lecture Award to VA uh, Shiva Ayuduri. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. <laughs> Thank you.